0: How does antimicrobial resistance impact Ontario's poultry industry, and what are the best health management practices for chickens and turkeys? Today we're speaking with Alana Conniebear, a producer based in southwestern Ontario, whom helps to manage a commercial broiler farm and a robot dairy herd. Alana shares her perspectives on flock management to reduce the use of antimicrobials in the poultry industry, and her recent transition to a flock that's raised without antibiotics. So, let's get into it. Well, Lana, it's a pleasure to be able to sit down in the dairy barn today and in, uh, in the office, nice and warm. And uh, after having a, a very cool and uh, tour through a couple of your poultry facilities, um, get a better sense and, and have an opportunity to talk to you about antimicrobial stewardship and what that means for you. So welcome. Thanks very yeah, much for being thanks here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. This is cool. This is great.
0: So um, for, for those that, that haven't had a chance to meet you and, and, and don't know where we're sitting today, can you give us a sense of, of who you are and, and what your background is in the poultry side of things?
1: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Alana Conover and I farm at Conley Farms Inc. with my parents. So my parents are here full time and as well we have a full time employee and a couple part time that help us throughout the year as well. Um, so yeah, so our barn cons- or our farm consists of a dairy facility, a poultry facility and cash crop uh, element of the business as well. So the poultry side of the f- business has been going on for 26 years. My dad and my uncle uh, bought a poultry quota, broiler quota in 1993 and we've had the broiler side ever since. The broiler side has expanded in 2018 to build a third barn. And so right now we're using one of the original barns and the, the new barn as well. And they've been in production, yeah, since 2018 with the new facility.
0: Great. Um, so what's your role on the farm?
1: So my role primarily actually is the dairy herd manager. So I'm in the dairy barn every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that takes up a vast majority of my time for sure. Uh, but on the poultry side, I really like the... Um, uh, like the macro level view of it. So mm-hmm. my dad does a lot of the day-to-day management, but of course cleaning up the barn, preparing for the new flock, but then also the audit side of things As I really enjoy doing that side. I like to see the um, how these programs, the animal health program and the farm on the on-farm safety, how that impacts farms and how he can implement those things on farm too. So mm-hmm. that's kind of where I come in on the the poultry side. Dad does a lot of the day-to-day stuff, but I get my hands dirty too.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and certainly from talking to you and your dad on the farm, I mean, yeah. it's, there's no question. You're aware of what's going on and yeah, how things sure. go. Yeah, so I guess getting into the meat of, of the conversation um, that we're here to have today, um, typically we'll focus a lot on what does antimic- antimicrobial or antibiotic resistance mean yep. for, for farms like yours. And yep. Um, you know, I think this is kind of a unique opportunity to chat with someone like yourself who, uh, it runs an operation that's raised without antibiotics. And so I'm really keen on sort of picking apart that a little bit and trying to understand yeah. what that means and, and what that looks like for you. And I guess just to, to back up, I mean, we're, we're spending a lot of time with this F.A.S.T. project talking about antibiotic resistance because, uh, it's one of a number of, of fairly large issues that we're talking about in livestock agriculture today. Yeah. and, and. AMR and uh, many other reasons, animal welfare, consumer concerns, other things have have caused industries to look at um, differentiating their markets and offering things like raised without antibiotics or RWA, because I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll use that acronym quite a bit. Yeah. Um, So you participate in that from a poultry side and it sounds like Mm -hmm. it's a more recent change. So I guess, can you give us a sense first of what it means to be an RWA flock here in Ontario?
1: Sure. Yeah. So for RWA, for us, we Transition, yeah, fairly recently. So, uh, I'll, so barn three is the new barn. Okay. Uh, so barn three, when it was built, it was had two transition flocks, and then the third flock was certified RWA, mm-hmm. and so that happened in 2018, and it's been RWA ever since. Um, because of how the cycles were, where we were on a seven-week cycle and the new barn came in on a seven-week cycle. We ran just the new barn, barn three, for a while until we could bring barn one, the original barn, back into production on a 10-week cycle, Mm -hmm. just based on our quota and how many birds we were placing. Uh, So then once barn um, one came in, that barn also similarly had two transition flocks, and then this last flock that just went out last week was its first RWA Mm -hmm. flock that went out. But yeah, that barn has been freezing conventional chickens since 1993. Um, for us, the reason to switch to our WA, it was a conversation that started happening a while ago. I mean, that program has existed for years prior to when we had switched. And that um, once it emerged, we were certainly having conversations, you know, is that something for us? Is it something worthwhile? Is it something that we want to switch to? And it was a bit, it is a bit of a challenging decision for a couple of reasons. For one, we were definitely concerned about increased mortality. Um, what do we do when we have an outbreak? What is the impact we're going to see on our farm? Mm-hmm. And from an animal welfare perspective, we are definitely worried. Like, are these birds going to be more sick? Are we going to have to deal with increased illness? Uh, what is that going to do with the future of this flock in this barn? Like, is it is could there be a situation where this disease could be rampant that we can't control? Mm-hmm. Um, and that was certainly something that we were concerned of. And if we're doing all of this, I mean, money is a big driver for things, too. Like, what is our guarantee if we're going to do this and take on more risk and, you know, potentially deal with more sick birds and more mortalities? Are we going to be compensated for this? and is that something we want to do? Um, so when we built the new barn, that increased our square footage for our flock. So prior to that, we were some of our flocks were high density. So before the new barn, our WA really wasn't an option because of our square footage, but then the new barn kind of gave us the opportunity to say, well, let's give it a try. Mm-hmm. So for us, we were seeing that the preventative um, use of um, class two had already come out, so that was already out of the out of the feed programs we're like well this seems to be something that we might be forced into doing anyways just based on regulation so if we can if we can start now and maybe get and have a premium and see what works well see if the system as well it works for us let's try it now and see and if we can't we can always go back to that conventional so it was i mean a lot of things on the farm you try and see there's so many things that farmers are doing all the time that is an on trial basis but you never set anything in stone you never say well i'm going to do this forever and we're never going to change um so yeah if we're going to give it a shot and and see how it goes it's definitely been an interesting transition i mean there's things that you learn thankfully um i mean dad had been in the chicken barn for you know 25 plus years by the by the time we're doing this so he didn't go into it green like if it was say your very first flock of chickens and it was RWA. I mean, there's certainly different management techniques, but maybe you would just learn those techniques initially and you wouldn't have to learn conventional then switch. So, I mean, it's nice to have that background for sure. And that familiarity with the flock and the breed and dealing with that and what we typically see, what you want to see, the growth that you want to see. You already know what to expect. So that is certainly helpful, mm-hmm. but I mean I wouldn't say that new producers couldn't just start with RWA either, I think. Yep. yeah, It just depends on what you're comfortable with, too. But.
0: Right. And so you mentioned, you know, that one of the big concerns, and, and, and I agree with you, it's certainly something that I always think about when we hear consumers or, or lobby groups say, we yeah. need to remove the use yeah. of antimicrobials. The first thing, or or market antibiotic-free, yeah. the first thing I think of is, well, let's just make sure we're, we're not Handicapping ourselves or just accepting larger losses as a result of pulling something that consumers You know perceive to be negative. Yeah, because antimicrobials certainly have their place when it comes to treating issues uh, Illness right so so talk to me about that transition How did you find the health and welfare of your animals? You know given that you've now been able to transition to RWA.
1: So I would say our first flock was a disaster (laughs) It was tough and it was really hard and so we after that first talk we're like if this is what it's like we can't continue with this Mm -hmm. um and but part of that is um you learn like okay well this didn't work and that that is a part that i still that i still struggle with is like that animals do have to die to figure out what didn't work i mean we i mean we do the same thing with crops and sometimes you have a crop failure or a really poor year with something or you don't get your beans off or you're that Field the white beans didn't work out so that has a failure that too but it it's hard when it's when you know when it's a living thing when it's a different Absolutely. when it's an animal for sure so um that flock we had tried the we were Um, experimenting with water additives so the idea like for especially with rwa the push gut health i mean the gut health of that chicken is like the of the utmost importance if we can make sure that gut stays healthy then we can prevent coccidiosis we can prevent uh, necrotic will and will is what we call it but um we can prevent those birds from getting those the two biggest killers especially in these broiler Mm -hmm. systems um so what we were adding was almost like um like a chili powder Hmm. um and so the idea was to to change that gut health uh, that way, and and I and that's is it the product was it the timing was it also because it was kind of like that first flock right there's so many other variables that it's really hard to isolate well this one particular thing, um, but for us we're like well we used the I I don't know the product name was kind of like, had yeah, this chili the idea was like a chili powder. Mm-hmm. Um, we're like, that did not work. (laughs) So then from that flock on, we use different types of water additives. Mm -hmm. Um, and that for us was a really big, like that is what I think made all those other flocks successful. So since that first one, we've really haven't had, we haven't had mortality above 2%. Um, but for us that 2% is still, still seems kind of high in our conventional flock. I mean, we were usually always significantly under that. Um, and some, some of our flocks have been some of them have only been one percent or less than one percent right. too. So it does. I mean, every flock uh, does have its variance as well. But um, yeah, the first flock was it. That was really tough for sure to see. Yeah, out sort of, I think about of uh, fifteen thousand birds. We lost twenty five hundred. So it was a as it was hard. That mm-hmm. was tough. Um, but we changed for us. It was the change of the water additive that we had, and I think you. I mean, hatcheries can change things as well, like vaccination sure. aspects like that. There's so many things that are huge players in that barn. So vaccinations at hatcheries, the the feed program that you're on, um, it's in a really stark juxtaposition to a dairy barn where everything that goes into these cattle is completely under our control. Mm-hmm. The feed, the vaccinations, the medication, everything is made a decision made by us to do and we are the ones administering it and uh, so it is diff- certainly different when you have that hatchery play such an important role in the health of that chick um and you not be directly involved in that but i mean hatchery vaccinations are of the utmost importance to making sure those chicks start off from a good place um And then your feed program as well, obviously, and making sure that the the company... So we don't make any feed on farm. Um, We have a local feed supplier that works really closely with us. Mm -hmm. They check in regularly to make sure things are going well. And so to have that um, industry expert there with us kind of helping us along and us going kind of down the pathway together right you're in that you're in it together that for sure is important because if they see an issue or they see a problem i mean they're also been doing it longer than us too so you have the person making your feed and formulating that feed being an expert in that too so that for sure is a huge huge help but so the hatcheries and the feed are a huge aspect for us too but for our management lighting and water are two things that we can directly control and Mm -hmm. so for us the water additive changing that was made it go from a disaster disaster to successful really. mm-hmm.
0: and that's i mean that's not, not an uncommon story i think i mean it's it's adopting a new management yeah. uh, you know approach yeah uh, and that really is is yeah. uh you know is it, just that it's a transition and yeah you, and you need to figure out what works for you because um well, we don't always have a sort of a prescriptive approach to, yeah, you know, a barn is not a barn is not a barn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and every flock that you have coming in, is different. Yeah, it's probably different in terms of what they're coming in with. But yeah. it's it's interesting to hear you talk about the efficacy of vaccination pro- programs that are done by the hatchery mm-hmm. and sort of to ensure that you know chicks are, are coming into your situation um, as, you know, primed as to, for success as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the things that um, many people listening to this, you know, might be keen on is, and you've already touched on some of them, is, you know, if you're in an RWA situation, we're not talking about antimicrobial stewardship so much, which would typically mean, you know, the prudent or the mm-hmm. you know, reasonable reduction in the use of antimicrobials to use them only when they're needed and, yeah. and specifically where uh, they're needed. Um, because we that's that's sort of a tool that's been removed from your situation. So that means you need to really rely on alternatives, yeah. like you talked about, the water additives, um, and also look at other sort of management strategies or mm-hmm. techniques um, to try and maintain the health and welfare of your birds as best as possible. And it sounds like you're, you're sort of on that, you know, you're far, far along that journey on figuring that out. Yeah. What would be some of your top things that you would talk about in terms of what you've learned that are really essential for managing bird health.
1: Sure. And I I think part of it is something that even with RWA is, I think as an industry, we still have to retain the ability to use antibiotics when we need to. Um, And I think even, so we've been fortunate that since we, well, it's also because it's so new, that since we've transitioned RWA that we've been able to um, mitigate, especially after that first flock, mitigate our losses with uses of rwa practices but i think it's so important that when there's an outbreak that we still have to be able to have antibiotics at our disposal to use Mm -hmm. i mean otherwise i think it would just be completely devastating or it would be completely devastating for sure so i think that still having that tool in our toolbox is absolutely necessary Um, i mean you don't you always want to have a for everything you always want to have that plan b so rwa it's that program certainly has its benefits but having that antibiotic still there when we need it i think it's an important tool for making this work because otherwise i think as an industry if we would say you know what we're taking out all antibiotics and come hell or high water we're never using them that's a really difficult moral standpoint to to stand from so that i think still having that in our toolbox is a really valuable asset um in terms of what we do um the chickens can tell you a lot so when we do like monitoring mortality really closely is really important because especially with um, NE and coccidiosis, I mean, it can take hold so quickly. So, I mean, so you have to, you have to look at those mortalities every day on a daily basis. Are your numbers changing? If there's 10 more than usual today, okay, watch it close. But then if there's 25 more than usual today, you have to do something now. Mm -hmm. So it's, in that case, you're still being reactive in that circumstance, but when you when you do have to be reactive, it has to happen very quick and very timely. Uh, so for us on the prevention side of things, it's your lighting program, so you can use your lights to slow down the bird's uh, growth. Um, so the idea is give them more rest time. Maybe you're going to increase your hours of darkness. An RWA um, protocol now is six hours of darkness um, after their first 24 hours, um, and that's been increased from an uh, industry standard of four. Mm-hmm. So it's this... Uh, is this understanding that these birds do need to grow slower. Um, And also the idea of lighting intensity is being reduced during the day. So they don't have these really big bursts of really high energy, eating a lot and gorging themselves. But let's just keep lighting intensity a bit lower um, and maybe some longer periods of darkness to to slow that down. That's for sure an important part of it too. Um, And then, like I said, the water additive. So um, the product that we called, that is called Maple Blue, Is one that we use and then we transition them birds from just well water to maple blue with a product in between called selco and The idea behind these products. I mean those are just because those are what our supplier gives us because of who we're shipping chickens with Um, But the idea is to lower the pH of the water to improve that gut health and so for us that's been that's been huge Uh, and how we use those products has kind of been uh, a bit of an experiment so you know changing that water pH we do it gradually uh, gradually when we shift them on the day that we change them we've done some experiments on what day do we start uh, and then similarly at grow out we've done some experiments and bring that water back down to a, a neutral pH of seven at the end and again Changing those, you know, using selco at the end and helping transition. So I mean, all that's been an experiment and all that's kind of trials and tribulations to figure out what works. But as a farmer, you have your well, and humidity too. Uh, the idea to keep humidity a bit higher to help some of those good bugs grow and populate the barn too. So those are the things that you have at your disposal, and those are the things that have really helped us. And looking at the when and looking at the birds, when the birds die, mm-hmm. are they flips or are they so a flip is one typically on their back and associated with um, a heart attack from maybe possibly growing too fast. Um, and you'll find the birds on their sides with their legs tucked up. So those things is looking at how these birds are dying will tell you maybe some possible issues and things that you can address. And again, when you have a few more birds
0: you know,
1: tomorrow then today you can start making those adjustments now right. and really watching that stuff closely. So for us, those are big kind of tools that we've been using.
0: Yep. One other one that, that um, I might just ask you to comment on is um, yeah. is stocking density. You talked yeah. about, you know, the difference, you were high density before and yep. how that's changed. How's that impact uh, the, the health and the growth and the stresses put on them?
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we're, um, so before we were above, so your typical density is your 2.88 kgs per square foot is your typical cutoff. If I have my if I have my numbers correct, but I'm fairly certain that that's what it is. Uh, so before that, yeah, we did have flocks that were running above two point eight eight. And it's because we had more drinkers and waters in our barn than the minimum requirement. So we had plenty more, so we actually could run high density fairly well Reasonably, efficiently. Yeah. yeah, and it worked it worked quite well actually. You just again management comes. I mean, you really have to be on your game uh, with stuff like that. But um, with our WA, you're shifted back to um, kind of one bird per square foot. So now you're kind of at a 2.1 uh, threshold. Uh, and, so for, and I think for partly that when they're not so close together, I mean, think of people as well. If we're not so close to people, we're not going to spread contagious things between us as easily. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a similar idea with birds as well. So the stocking density is, is for sure less on, on the system. Um, and because you're, you've taken out kind of your, well, your preventative, a uh, preventative tool being a preventative antibiotic, um, eliminating that stress at the, right from the stocking density is certainly a, a point that can help you as well. Too. Mm-hmm, yeah.
0: mm-hmm. So what do you think um, the biggest challenges for managing health and welfare are today?
1: yeah yeah me or the birds yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) fair enough (laughs) um no i think a big challenge for just the industry in general is like how people perceive us right like i no farmer has ever gone out and said I don't want my birds or animals or cows or chickens or whatever to not do well. No, that's never been an ideology, I don't believe, of a farmer. I mean, it's hard to speak in generalizations, but um, that would be a very poor farmer if that was your ideology. So, I mean, it's always been, I mean, as a farmer, our your prime concern and why you wake up in the morning is to take care of your animals, is to grow food, is to take care of your land. That's why we do what we do. <laughs> But it's how do we make sure that consumers believe us? How do we make sure that consumers trust what we're doing and getting our message that we, if we do something in a certain way, it's not because we're negligent. It's not because we're money-hungry monsters that that's the best and fastest way to extrapolate money or suck money out of something. It's There's probably a reason for that management decision. So it's how do we, a challenge for us is how do we make sure that consumers still believe that. They can trust us to grow safe and healthy food. Um, And how do we as an industry make sure we continue to do that? And I think from an antibiotic standpoint is we've identified that, I mean, antibiotic use is becoming problematic for both people and for animals. And so for us, we have, as an industry, I never want what I'm doing to negatively impact the health of humans. I never want us using antibiotics to make antibiotics in a hospital less effective. So I don't want to take a tool of treating people away from that because because I, we decide to use it broadly in industry. So for us, it's identifying like if we can do something better, if we can do something different, I think it's worth a try. Um, some things like that we don't know until we try to see whether this works. But I think we still, it's not nothing's ever a silver bullet. It's not like this RWA program and our protocols that we're using now are going to be the silver bullet to save it and antibiotics and people are going to work 100% better now. But is it something that could possibly help? And do we take away an impossible, a possible danger from the health of humans? If we can do that, it's worth a shot. So yeah, making sure consumers still trust us to, to provide their food safely, which I think we do a really good job of, um, and sustainably too, for sure. Um, but how do we make sure that we don't um take away effective antibiotics from people to to use them when they need them as well
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's a huge issue right and in in trying to make sure that everyone across that value chain understands what's being done and more maybe more importantly why it's being done yeah and i think you're totally right on with that i mean every farmer you talk to is always striving to to find, yeah. it, you know, how can I get over this hurdle that I, you know, I'm experiencing or this challenge that I'm you know, most people are pretty open about the fact that you know we're not perfect, like no. like every other industry for yeah. that matter. Yeah. And trying to figure out what's the next bit. So it's it's good to hear your story about, you know, transitioning and the rationale behind transitioning and mm-hmm. then, you know, with some legitimate reservations about how's yeah. this gonna go and and it's exciting and, and really interesting to hear how you've been able to overcome some of those challenges and yeah. are still striving to to for continuous improvement
1: yeah and i think that's like as like as a farmer you have to wake up well a like excited what you're doing um but i mean you got to but i think with anything not just farmers like you have to want to be able to do better there's always things that we can do better try there's there's so many things we haven't tried yet and it's worth investigating um but when it's but things take time and things take money too. So you have to be a little reserved yep. on things that you experiment with. But I think, yeah, every I mean, every morning you have to wake up and try like, okay, I'm gonna, not every day, some days are a crapshoot. <laughs> 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 but um, I mean the desire to always be better and, and to see that improvement, I mean, that's, a, a, I think it's a big driver for a lot of people. But it's, um, it's hard to convince people of that too, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's hard to convince consumers. Um, and to people who aren't involved in the industry, like what, why do we do what we do? And that we actually do care deeply about these animals that we, we do take care of. And like, I don't want the, when you walk into a barn, no one wants to see an animal suffering. Like that's never your intention. Um, and so how do you make sure that people really get that? No, we do care about what we do. And, and I think it's a really awesome opportunity that I have to produce food for other people that's a really great opportunity and and not many people get to say that they get to do that so for those of us who do do that um it's a yeah it's something that we take pretty pretty seriously and it's a pretty great industry to be in but Mm -hmm. we have to convince other people too yeah
0: (laughs) no i think that's that's great comments um one other thing i wanted to ask you about because it's it's as you're talking it's becoming clear it's it's uh An important component to success for you is relationships in terms Mm -hmm. of your family relationships so being able to communicate with your your dad and other help you have on the farm but also your nutritionist and your veterinarian and the hatchery and so on i mean there's so many things that you know it it takes a community to raise these these animals in in many cases right yeah um and so you mentioned the word protocols a couple of times so trying to talk to me about that how do you establish sort of this is what we're going to do and and if we're deviating you know, we need to evaluate that and and why. Yeah, and. How do we change those practices over time? It sounds like there's a lot of communication that has to happen in order to make sure that we're all on the same page, everything's moving forward, and when there are issues, we're addressing those. So, what does yeah. that look like for you, and how does that contribute to success?
1: Yeah, so for us, yeah, you definitely can't, you definitely aren't in isolation. I mean, our barn and our farm, like our the poultry side of things, is one step for those birds. I mean, those birds come from laying hens that are raised in a certain environment, and the health of those laying hens directly impacts how these birds do so I mean although I don't have a direct relationship with people who obviously run those laying hens I mean the the viability the success and the wellness of those birds are impacted by so many things out of my control so many things that I don't have authority over or processes I'm not at all involved in right so you have to have some sort of relationship with that company to be like okay if things go terribly wrong (laughs) worst case scenario things go terribly wrong here How do I know? Is it something I did? Is it a protocol I didn't follow? Is it a mistake I made? Um, Or is it something that happened completely out of my control that it's something else that we should be looking at? at the hatchery, at the vaccination stage. Um, those decisions, I'm not at the table. For. No one invited me. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not at the table for. But at least you have, you have to work with them to make sure, okay, if we're going to do our WA, that means our feed supplier has to be on board. They have to have products that's kind of tried and true that they'll work with us and help us. And of course, your hatchery has to be on board with making sure that the birds that you get are going to need likely different vaccinations. Sure. And, and everything has to be going in a way that you're going to support each other the hatchery and processor want rwa birds i have to make sure my piece in that is is balanced as well but i have to make sure everybody else too we're all yeah we all have to go in the same direction otherwise you're going to have more challenges than you need mm-hmm. you're going to have enough challenges don't don't add any more <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah for and, sure.
0: and how does your vet factor into to these conversations
1: yeah so our the vet that we have is through our feed company um so that I mean that relationship is one that we rely on a lot with our feed company kind of with our advisor that comes out after Mm -hmm. every flock have like a debrief how did the flock do what were challenges what are things that they're doing differently and so the vet works with that feed company Um, so then when we have an issue if it's something that our advisor can't like directly help us with if it's a protocol or something that we can't change then they'll go to the veterinarian and either we talk to the veterinarian directly or they say this is things that you know he's prescribing or things that they're doing that we can try Um, so that it's always like totally different than the dairy farm. I mean, I get to pick which cows are treated and when and based on your experience and your training, you have the agency to do that. But with the chicken barn, I mean you're all like every thing that's fed to the chickens, that's given to the chickens is with advice from somebody else if you have you know time to start electrolytes you double check to make especially with rwa is that electro even that that electrolyte is that electrolyte approved for an rwa barn? we haven't had to get into that but that's something that you have to follow Mm -hmm. is you know is that feed okay is it like everything has to be double checked and triple checked with other people involved so you you're constantly having to make sure that you have that working relationship and that is productive relationship too so yeah so anytime that uh conventionally we have had so before rwa there's times where the the vet from our feed company said this is a uh, time of the year this flock is maybe at danger for bronchitis last summer or last spring was like a really wet and gray spring bronchitis loves that weather especially mm-hmm. in our naturally ventilated barn you know that they those birds may be more susceptible i mean conventionally non-naturally ventilated barns were at risk too but um so with that the veterinarian directly said this is a vaccine that i think you guys should use this is you use it this is how you administer it so in that case it was them a direct directive from them saying this is what we need to use for this flock um, and yeah, and so making sure that everyone's on the same page with that. So it, the, the vet doesn't come in for every flock or anything like that, but it's certainly a resource that is there and you can call upon them when, when you need to, for sure. sure. Yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, that's good. The, the last question and maybe sort of request for a piece of advice I'll, I'll ask yeah. is— um, there have been some changes in the industry, and more seem to be coming from yeah. in Canada, not just in Ontario, um, removing uh, certain classes of antimicrobials mm-hmm. for e- uh, preventative use on yeah. on farms. So we lost number um, category twos recently, yeah. and, and I think category threes are something that's kind of being evaluated. Com-
1: yeah, kind of. Pop- potentially in the future right
0: and and so looking at those numbers or those category threes they really are uh, some some uh, tools that people are using when it comes to managing or preventing necrotic enteritis and mm-hmm. coccidiosis the ones you talked about is really hard hitters mm-hmm. for some as someone who doesn't ha- um use those as as uh approaches to prevent these diseases yeah um, and looks has to use and rely on alternatives and other strategies what would you just say to someone who's listening now, thinking mm-hmm. about, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna lose these as tools to manage these these conditions, and so therefore I'm gonna probably have to make some changes to make sure my yeah. birds are healthy and and uh, in every way in top shape. Yeah. What what piece of advice would you offer to them, or what things do they need to think about?
1: I think for sure it's uh, for us like that those water additives has really helped, like looking changing the pH of the water is something that's really helped in in terms of um managing the two symptoms of NE and I think part another one is there's definitely a bit of a philosophy change so, I mean boiler barns four was the idea to get these birds off get them started growing as fast as they can and you know have that return o- return on your feed as high as you can but with um, the biggest change kind of just like the ideology of it is almost slower is better now and mm-hmm. so that's something to kind of like Wait, that's not how we have been raising chickens <laughs> yep. so that part is something that um now we're not talking about uh weight gain we're talking about gut health so that conversation shifts a bit yep. so instead of just looking at kgs these birds are gaining we're going to be talking having conversations about gut health and what's healthy for that bird's gut before we didn't have to focus on that so much because class two and class three were kind of taking care of that for us so now it's now we're still talking about the same bird, but the conversation shifted from weight to gut health. I think that's a that's a shift that's happened too. Um, and, ter- and we're, you know, you and I were talking this a bit when we went over to look at the barns. I think um, conversations about, is this industry going in the right, is that a direction that we want to take? Um, and that was one of the things that, uh, you know, my parents and I talked about, um, probably at length before we started, is growing less birds a certain way but that product being more expensive—is that something that we want to do? Is that something for every farmer to do? I don't know. I have a tough—I have a tough time saying that a blanket approach and the same approach for everyone is okay because I mean, in any other industry, you know, no one is the exact same in any other industry, anyways. But I mean, you have those quality assurance programs. I mean, across any livestock, you have those quality assurance programs to do say that these are the standards that we're going to abide by, but for a management protocol, I mean, no no facilities manage the exact same way right. down, even on this road. I mean, our neighbors are all dairy farmers, and we all have different approaches to stuff too. Um, so I think for us as farmers, we have to, farmers and an in industry, we have to talk about and think about the food system that we want. It's not just what happens in my barn that's important. It's the food system where I'm contributing to. It's the people that are buying this food. And so if I'm growing more expensive chicken, what are people going to do that can't afford that chicken? There's a social justice issue with these conversations. And I feel like at farms, on a farm level, sometimes it doesn't happen. But I mean, on an industry level, I really, I don't get the impression that that's happening. And so that's something that's concerning as a farmer being like, I'll grow whatever the consumer wants and whatever the consumer is willing to pay for. We will do that there's always going to be consumers that have more money than other consumers and so how do we make sure that all eaters and every person in Canada and every person that this food system is supporting and feeding that they have access to this food and if we're saying okay we want to we want chicken to be RWA and that's important this chicken's going to be more expensive okay that's fine we need to make sure people are still eating we need to make sure this food system still has food accessible for everyone we need to that is a conversation that also needs to happen so and that's when you're talking about RWA. You don't expect sometimes that food justice to come up, but I think that's so so important to say. Okay, we've identified that we're raising less birds, potential to have more mortality. Um, okay, and these birds are more expensive. That's all fine and well, and and currently we're being compensated for that. But what happens to people that can't afford it? Mm-hmm. And what's that? What's that going to look like? And you know, how do we? I, for me, having having a food system that's just and having a food system that means that everybody has access to culturally appropriate food for them is really important. So when I'm making, when we're making these decisions, how do we make sure that that other side is being taken care of? I don't, I'm still asking the questions. So yep. <laughs> I'm, que- yeah, I'm at the question asking part, yep. uh, but that's a conversation that really, really needs to happen too. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's a social justice issue. It's a food issue, but it's also a human issue. Um, so yeah, that's a, kind of goes hand in hand with it as well Mm -hmm. it kind of deviated a bit from your question
0: no but i I like that i mean it i I guess it demonstrates you've got a lot of layers to that that answer and i think it demonstrates uh like the depth of thought that you've given to to this it wasn't it wasn't a and and i think you really exemplify well a lot of farmers in that decision yeah to to, you know it's not willy-nilly it's not it's not absolutely not you know yeah. yeah we we there's a monetary opportunity here here i mean of course the bottom line in economics must drive these are businesses just like any yeah. other. Yeah. Um, but you mentioned, uh, just to pick out some of the nuggets, at least for me, was, you know, quality assurance programs. They're there to, and not just quality assurance programs, but other standards, mm-hmm. protocols, and expectations are there to help maintain health and welfare, drive cost of production, to make sure the system is is operating as efficiently and effectively as possible. Yeah. Um, but then, of course, you need to be able to tailor those standards to each operation because yeah. everyone is different. And regionally, there are different climate patterns there yeah. are different you know all these specific things but as you get into the cost of, of food and and consumer trends and all of these things or your comment about trust previously i mean mm-hmm. there's a lot of components we need to understand what consumers want mm-hmm. what they need and then we need to be able to respond but that conversation really needs to happen the other way as well yeah. we, need to, we need consumers to understand where we're coming from why we're doing what we're doing yeah. and again both sides recognizing that collectively we're probably better off from knowing what one another need and are doing uh than than staying in our silos but um so i think that that's actually a really nice place to to leave off so uh, alana it's been a pleasure to get to chat with you and yeah it's been great see the farms and and learn a lot from you so thanks very much
1: yeah no worries thanks for your time thanks for having me this has been great
0: hey everyone thanks for listening today we hope you enjoyed the discussion remember to check back with this podcast as we're going to continue putting up new podcasts on this issue and we're also working on other tools and resources for both veterinarians and producers, all focused on antimicrobial resistance and the practice of antimicrobial stewardship. You can find these tools and resources at www.amstewardship.ca. FAST is a collaborative initiative between the Ontario Veterinary Medical Association, Acer Consulting, government, academic, and industry partners, and its mission is to improve antimicrobial stewardship in farmed animals prepare farmed animal owners and their veterinarians for policy and regulatory changes, and ultimately to preserve the efficacy of antimicrobials without compromising animal health or food safety. Thanks for listening.